All right, let's finish up with Sir Philip Sidney's Astrophil and Stella. Uh, let's start with Sonnet 61. And I want you to notice all of the, the parallels that are set up in this sonnet linguistically. Oft with true sighs, oft with uncalled tears, now with slow words, now with dumb eloquence, I, Stella's eyes, assail, invade her ears. But this, at last, is her sweet-breathed defense, that who indeed infelt affection bears, so captives to him saint both soul and sense, that wholly hers, her selfness he forbears. Thence his desires he learns, his life course his life's course thence. Now, since her chaste mind hates this love in me, with chastened mind I straight must show that she shall quickly from me what she hates remove. O oh, Dr. Cupid, thou for me reply, driven else to grant by angel's sophistry that I love not without I leave to love. All right, let's, let's unpack some of this. Again, look at how it starts off with all of these parallels. Oft with true sighs, oft with uncalled tears. Repetition of oft, the parallel of sighs and tears, which are similar but different, kind of like a, a kind of conceptual rhyme. Then the next line is a mirror of the first line. Now, now, instead of oft, oft. And again... Uh, a parallel, slow words and dumb eloquence. Both uh, the first line is about you know sounds of love. The second line is about words of love. I Stella's eyes assail, invade her ears. Well, we've got assail and invade that mirror one another. Eyes and ears make the pair. And also eyes and I, just in the sound of the words. So I, Stella's eyes assail her, invade her ears. And of course, her is a parallel to Stella. It's a pronoun reference to her. So everything in the line is, is echoing something else. But this, at last, is her sweet-breathed defense. All right. Now, sweet-breathed, picks up the idea of sighs and tears and also the idea of words and eloquence in the first two lines. And defense picks up the military metaphor in line three of assail and invade. So what's happened here? He's been sighing and uh, talking about love, uh, but she has a defense. This is his, you know, again, the Petrarchan metaphor, conceit of (laughs) love is a war. And this is her defense, that who indeed infelt affection bears, so captives to his saint both soul and sense, that wholly hers, all selfness, he forbears. All right. So whoever really feels affection uh, is so captive to his saint, his beloved, both soul and sense, another nice little parallel there, that wholly hers, all selfness, he forbears. Well, if you totally love me, then you're giving up yourself, right? Thence his desires he learns, his life's course thence. 
Notice again the mirroring, ending and beginning with dense. So he says, if if you love me, you should be totally concerned about me, not about yourself. He says, now, since her chaste mind hates this love in me, with chastened mind, I straight must show that she shall quickly from me what she hates remove. Again, parallel of chaste mind and chastened mind. Her chaste mind, his chastened mind. And if he does everything that she wants, if he's so in love with her that she sees everything, well, the thing she doesn't like about him is the fact that he loves her, so we'd have to remove that. So he says, Dr. Cupid, a doctor is in a professor, you know, the, he has a degree. Um, Thou for me reply. He says, you know, Cupid, the god of love, is going to have to reply to this. Else, driven else to grant by angels' sophistry that I love not without I leave to love. So, I, you know, the the very fact that I love you so much, Stella says, is the reason you should stop pestering me. And he says, how do I answer this? I can't say that I, uh, the only way I can prove that I, I love her is to stop loving her. Um, and so uh, the last line, too, of course, is a nice mirror or parallel. Um Again, it's very tightly woven language. One of the things that the sonnet um, encourages is a very kind of tightly woven verbal fabric. Uh, where here you see so many parallels and, and, and echoes. And also you very often see in the sonnet these very kind of witty paradoxical arguments. Uh, they're very common in the, in the sonnet tradition. Now in by sonnet 69, we've gone from the, the, the despair that he has of being tied into a logical rhetorical knot uh, by Stella's argument uh, to a very different emotional tone. O joy too high for my low style to show, O bliss fit for a nobler state than me, envy put out thine eyes, lest thou do see what oceans of delight in me do flow. My friend, that oft saw through all masks my woe, come, come, and let me pour myself on thee. Gone is the winter of my misery, my spring appears. O see what here doth grow, for Stella hath, with words where faith doth shine, of her high heart given me the monarchy. I, I, O I, may say that she is mine, and though she give but thus conditionally this realm of bliss, while virtuous course I take, no kings be crowned, but they some covenants make. So here he's he's just in rapture, joy, bliss. Uh, Stella has given of her heart the monarchy. But even this one, uh, it ends with she's given it conditionally if he he only has the mastery of her heart if he is virtuous, if he takes a virtuous course, which is actually exactly the same thing that happened in the last sonnet. She's kind of caught him in a, in a logical trap because being virtuous would be not to pursue this, this unattainable woman. Um, but he kind of passes off, well, you know, you can't be king without making some compromises. And that, um, that war between virtue and desire 
shows up in the next couple of sonnets, 71 and 72. In 71, Who will in fairest book of nature know how virtue may best lodged in beauty be? Let him but learn of love to read in thee, Stella, those fair lines which true goodness show. There shall he find all vices overthrow, not by rude force, but sweetest sovereignty of reason, from whose light those night birds fly, that inward sun in thine eyes shineth so. And not content to be perfection's heir, thyself, not content to be perfection's heir thyself, dost strive all minds that way to move, who mark in thee what is in thee most fair. So, while thy beauty draws the heart to love, as fast thy virtue bends that love to good. But ah, desire still cries, give me some food. So here we have the same dynamic. Now this happens too a lot in sonnets. A similar idea will be expressed in different ways. In those previous two sonnets, um, she had basically said, you, you know, if you really love me, you'll be uh, inspired by my beauty. You will be virtuous. Here's the same thing. And he starts off very positively. You know, her virtue is is expressed by her beauty. That's a, 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 a platonic idea, the idea that the, the outward physical expression is a, a, an expression of a higher truth. And so uh, she... Draw as it says, her beauty draws the heart to love, and her virtue bends that love to good. So her beauty draws you in, but her virtue makes you good. And that's all wonderful until the very last line. But ah, desire still cries, give me some food. Right? All of this platonic ideal and virtue is nice, but I, I, I want the real thing. And continue uh, another variation on this idea. In 72, here we see him directly addressing desire and saying farewell to desire. Desire, though thou my old companion art, so oft and oft so clings to my pure love that I one from the other scarcely can descry, while each doth blow the fire of my heart, now from thy fellowship I needs must part. Venus is taught with Diane's wings to fly. I must no more in thy sweet passions lie. Virtue's gold now must head my Cupid's dart. All right, so he's rejecting desire. He says, desire is so mixed up with love that I can't tell the two apart, but now we're going to virtue. And he uses the, the Greek, goddesses Venus and Diana. Venus is the goddess of love. Diana is the goddess of, among other things, chastity and virtue. Um, and says, now virtue's gold must head my Cupid's dart. Again, in classical mythology, uh, the, the golden arrow of Cupid was the one he shot at people that made them fall in love. But now it's been changed, just as we've gone from Venus, the goddess of love, to Diana, the goddess of chastity. We have a, a golden arrow that symbolizes virtue, not uh, amorous love. Uh, 
service and honor, wonder with delight, fear to offend, will worthy to appear, care shining in mine eyes, faith in my sprite. These things are left me by my only dear. But thou desire, because thou wouldst have all, now banished art. But yet, alas, how shall? So, it's a, another one that kind of uh, winds up and has a change in the end. He's hitting all these, I'm abandoning all these things. I'm going to be, I'm going to have service and honor. I'm going to be worthy and or my will will be worthy. Uh, care shining in my eyes, faith, all of that. Desire, you were too greedy, so I'm getting rid of you. But in the last half of the last line, he says, yeah, that's a good theory, but how am I going to do that? So this war between virtue and desire is played out in different ways in all of these sonnets we've just read, uh, but with different variations on the theme. And this is very common in a, in a sonnet sequence, that it will take an idea and approach it from uh, slightly different directions, give different spins or inflections to the, the, the idea. Now, in Sonnet 74 we return to a theme that we've seen before, actually from the very first sonnet of the sequence, uh, the idea of poetic inspiration. I never drank of Aganapi well, nor ever did in shade of Tempe sit, and muses scorn with vulgar brains to dwell, poor layman I, for sacred rites unfit. Some do, I hear, a poet's fury tell, but God, what, what, not what they mean by it. And this, I swear, by blackest brook of hell, I am no pick purse of another's wit. How falls it then, that with so smooth an ease, my thoughts I speak, and what I speak doth flow in verse, and that my verse best wits doth please? Guess we the cause. What, is it thus? Fie, no. Or so? Much less. How then? Sure, thus it is. My lips are sweet inspired with Stella's kiss. So, he begins the poem, and this kind of fits nicely the uh, Petrarchan uh, idea of having an octave and a sestet. The first eight, the first nine lines, first eight lines, excuse me, are uh, how he doesn't have the standard poetic inspiration. Aganapi well, Tempe, the muses, uh, the poet's fury, uh, all of that stuff. He doesn't have any of that. And also, he's no pick purse of another's wit. He's not, uh, he's not a plagiarist. He's not just stealing other people's ideas. And then notice that when he gets into this next one about how easily his thoughts flow, we get these long, this long, enjammed sentence. Uh, in, in the first part of the poem, every line is instopped. It comes to a pause at the end. But starting in line nine, it's uh, you know three lines in a row are all one sentence. How falls it then that with so smooth and ease my thoughts I speak, and what I speak doth flow in verse, and that my verse best wits doth please. So it has it is the very lines have a kind of that smooth, easy, flowing quality to them, uh, and we get the dialogue. People say, "Well, it was that, was it that?" No, no. And well, of course, what it is is Stella's kiss. 
this is like the end of the very first sonnet. Uh, Fool said, my amused me, look in thy heart and write. So he's not inspired by the, the, the classical ideas of poetry. He's inspired by the real experience of, of Stella. Uh, now let's look at the fourth song. Um, again, this was a part of the sonnet tradition that you would intersperse the sonnets with occasional songs. And they allow a different kind of uh, poetic idiom. Uh, there are different things you can do. There are things you can't do in a sonnet form, as flexible as it is. So let's look at the fourth song. Only joy, now here you are, fit to hear and ease my care. Let my whispering voice obtain sweet reward for sharpest pain. Take me to thee and thee to me. No, 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 my dear, let be. So we set up a, a pattern here. He is requesting that she accept him as the lover to take me to thee and thee to me. And her reply is always, no, 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 my dear, let be. Uh, so every stanza ends with that couplet. Uh, he, he's, he's trying to, and it, so it, the very form kind of enacts the frustration of the unrequited love. He makes an, uh, an approach to her, and she rejects it. Uh, but look at all the different approaches he makes. In the second stanza, night hath closed all in her cloak. Twinkling stars love thoughts provoke. Danger hence good care doth keep. Jealousy itself doth sleep. So the, the, the night is, you know, it's a romantic, the time for lovers. You know, this is when Romeo and Juliet have their balcony scene. This is the kind of the uh, uh, romantic time. And says, will that convince you? No, it won't. Better place no wit can find, Cupid's yoke to loose or bind. These sweet flowers on fine bed, too, us in their best language woo. So now we've got another romantic image, the flower garden, the sweetest flowers, a bed of flowers. Will that convince you? No, that doesn't work either. Uh, so the next stanza. This small light the moon bestows serves thy beams but to disclose, so to raise my hap more high. Fear not else, none can us spy. So now we've got the moon, the moon to display your beauty, to uh, increase my good fortune. Uh, nobody can see us in just the moonlight. No, that doesn't work either. Um, is that you heard was but that you heard was but a mouse dumb sleep holdeth all the house yet asleep methinks they say young folks take thy take time while you may so he's saying oh it, it's it's night you it, it was just a mouse you didn't hear anything nobody can hear us and um you know, young folks take thy time while you may that's the carpe diem argument does that work no uh, no, 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 my dear, let be. Then niggard time threaten, threats if we miss this large offer of our bliss. Long stay ere he grant the same, sweet then while each thing doth frame. Uh, kind of extending the carpe diem argument. Uh, argument. Uh, stingy time is, is against us. No, that doesn't convince her either. Your fair mother is abed, candles out and curtains spread. She thinks you do letters right. Right, but first, 
let me indict. Uh, no, we're not going to do that just because his mother's not here. Her mother's not there. It's not going to help. Sweet, alas, why strive you thus? Concord better fitteth us. Leave to Mars the force of hands. Your power in your beauty stands. Well, why are you fighting me about this? You're not, you know, you're, you're not military. You're not of, of God Mars, God of war. You, you should just, you know, let your let uh, let us be in Concord so I can praise your beauty. That doesn't work either, of course. No, 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 my dear, let be. So finally, the way that we twist it at the end, Woe to me, and do you swear me to hate, but I forbear. Cursed be my destinies all that brought me to so high, to, that brought me so high to fall. Soon with my death I will please thee. No, 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 my dear, let be. So he twists the inevitability of her reaction by taking it one step further. He says, well, the only thing that will please you at my death. And she says, no, 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 I don't want you to die. So that's the, the kind of the slender thread that he has to hang on to. She's rejected him, but she doesn't want him dead. So maybe there's hope for later. Um and that's the, again the kind of an interesting game he plays with the form by turning the the, the refrain, uh, twisting it in the last stanza so that it, it changes the meaning a little bit. Um, and again, that's an example of the kinds of things you can do with the with a song form that you really couldn't establish in a in a sonnet. Now these next few sonnets introduce a new theme: the idea of being absent from Stella, of her being away from him. Sonnet 87. When I was forced from Stella, ever dear, Stella, food of my thoughts, heart of my heart, Stella, whose eyes make all my tempests clear, by iron law of duty to depart, alas, I found that she with me did smart. I saw the tears did in her eyes appear. I saw the sighs her sweetest lips did part. And her sad words my saddest sense did hear. For me, I wept to see pearls scattered so. I sighed her sighs and wailed for her woe. Yet swam in joy, such love in her was seen. Thus, while the effect most bitter was to me, and nothing than the cause more sweet could be. I had been vexed, if vexed I had not been. So the idea here is he's, he, they're, they're part from her, he's crying, but she's crying too. And the fact that she's crying is helpful. That means that she regrets their departure too. Uh, so he, though he's weeping, he's swimming in joy because he sees the love in her. Uh, said, I, you know, I would have been vexed if I had not vexed. I had not been. Is another one of those kind of paradoxical twists that the sonneteers love to to give. Uh, the fact that I felt so bad made me feel good. Uh, Sonnet eighty nine continues the the idea of of uh, absence. Um, now that of absence, the most irksome night, with darkest shade, doth overcome my day. Since Stella's eyes want to give me in, to give me my day, leaving my hemisphere, leave me in night. Each day seems long and longs for long-stayed night. 
the night as tedious woos the approach of day, tired with the dusty toils of busy day, languished with horrors of the silent night, suffering the evils both of the day and night, while no night is more dark than is my day, nor no day hath less quiet than my night. With such bad mixture of my night and day, that living thus in blackest winter night, I feel the flames of hottest summer day. Now this one, as the footnote will tell you, it's it's just has two rhyme words, night and day. So it's all about, and this is another kind of, uh, it's typical of the kind of games that sonneteers would play. It's like, oh, can I do a sonnet with just two rhyme words, you know, okay, well, I'll play with that night and day, um, and, and still, you know, keep, keep everything, you know, going. And it says that, you know, his, uh, it, it talks about the difference between night and day and says that they're not different and that they are different. Again, all those kind of paradoxical game, logical games that the, uh, sonneteers like to play. Now, 91, again, takes up in a different way the theme of, of absence. Stella, while now by honor's cruel might I am from you, light of my life, misled, and that fair you, my son, thus overspread with absence veil, I live in sorrow's night. If this dark place yet show like candlelight, some beauty's peace, as amber-colored head, milk hands, rose cheeks, or lips more sweet, more red, or seeing jets, black, but in blackness bright. They please, I do confess, they please mine eyes, but why? Because of you they models be, models such would, uh, would, the, Models such be wood globes of glistering skies. Dear, therefore, be not jealous over me. If you hear that they seem my heart to move, not them, oh no, but you in them I love. So here it's um, another twist on the idea. He's absent from her, but he sees other women and in seeing them, he sees echoes of Stella's beauty. You know, he says they, they please his eyes only because they're models of her. And they're models in the same way that a, a wooden globe is a model of the glistering, glistering skies. Um, they had these uh, uh, globes, not maps of the world, but maps of the zodiac where you could see all of the constellations. That's what he's talking about. So, But these women are to you the way that that globe is to the reality of the full majesty and beauty of the night sky. Um, but so he says, oh, don't be jealous. It's, it's when I, if, if I seem to be in love with them, it's only because I love you so much. Uh, this reminds me to some lyrics of a song. Uh, you can't call it cheating because she reminds me of you. Um, and again, it, it's that kind of paradoxical logic that the sonneteers love so much. All right, let's look at the 11th song. This is the final song that appears in the sonnet sequence. 
And here, as before, we actually get some dialogue from Stella herself. And here it's not just a refrain that she keeps doing. There's actually some dialogue back and forth between them. So the, the, the stanzas start off with Stella's words and Astrophil replies. Who is it that this dark night underneath my window plaineth? It is one who from thy sight, being, ah, exiled, disdaineth every other vulgar light. So underneath my window, plaineth complains. Uh, this is the, the kind of stereotypical romantic situation. This is Romeo and Juliet's balcony scene. Uh, this is, you know, who is who's that that I hear uh, uh, serenading me at my window? And he says, you know, he's been exiled from you, uh, from thy sight, and so, but he only wants to be with her. Why, alas, and are you he? Be not yet those fancies changed? Again, there's a wonderful kind of deflation here. He says, oh my God, is it you again? Haven't you moved on? He says, dear, when you find change in me, Though from me you be estranged, let my change to ruin be. He will, he will never change. Any change he had would be the ruin of him. He couldn't imagine changing his love for her. Uh, and again, this is kind of a debate back and forth between them. Well, in absence this will die. Leave to see and leave to wonder. Absence sure will help. If I can learn how myself to sunder from what in my heart doth lie. So essentially, his absence will, will help, but it will help him remember what lies in his heart. Even if he's physically absent for her, she's still always in his heart. But time will those thoughts remove. Time doth work what no man knoweth. Time doth as the subject prove, with time still the affection groweth in the faithful turtle dove. The thing, well, you know, you'll get over me in time, so, oh no, time will only make my love grow even more. What if you new beauties see? Will not they stir new affection? I will think they pictures be, image-like of saint's perfection, poorly counterfeiting thee. Uh, so, you know, you're going to see some new ladies and you'll love them. He says, no, every lady I see will just remind me of you. Now, notice how these these stanzas are picking up themes and images and ideas that we've seen earlier in the sonnet sequence, the ideas of absence, the idea of seeing her beauty in other women. Uh, all these uh, kind of uh, echo back into the sonnet sequence. But your reason's purest light bids you leave such such minds to nourish. Dear, do reason no such spite. Never doth thy beauty flourish more than in my reason's sight. You know, just be reasonable. I said, well, reason is, it shows that you're the, the worthiest object of love. But the wrongs love bears will make love at length leave undertaking. You know, all of the wrongs that I'm doing, you know, eventually, you know, you, the, the punishments that you get for being in love with me will snap you out of, you know, back to your senses. No, the more fools it doth shake in a ground of so firm making, deeper still they drive the stake. No, the, the more abuse he gets, the more deeply in love he is with her.
his peace. I think that some give ear. Come no more, lest I get anger. Look, I, my family is going to overhear what we're saying. You've got to, you're going to get me in trouble. Bliss. I will my bliss forbear, fearing sweet you to endanger, but my soul shall harbor there. Well, you know, this kind of might convince him to physically leave, but his soul will still be with her. Well, be gone, be gone, I say. Let let Argus eyes, lest that Argus eyes perceive you. Oh, unjustest fortune sway, which can make me thus to leave you, and from louts to run away. Uh, so she gets, again, it's, it's kind of a, a paradoxical victory. She gets him to leave, but she doesn't really get him to stop loving her. It's only kind of a threat that she'll get him into trouble or that her brothers will come and beat him up or something, these louts. Uh, he'll run away from her, but really his heart is with her. Now, there's something kind of comic, I, I think you can hear in the tone of this. And there is... Uh, Sometimes the sonnets and the sonnet sequences are very deeply earnest. Uh, sometimes they're very uh, intellectual and you know, philosophical. Uh, sometimes they're just lighthearted and funny. Uh, the, the the idea of unrequited love uh, was very often uh, the, the basis for comedy. Uh, Shakespeare frequently had uh, had that in Midsummer Night's Dream is the best example probably. Where the the fact that the, somebody loves somebody who doesn't love them uh, becomes a comic situation. All right, let's look at the very last sonnet, Sonnet 108. And as is typical with a sonnet sequence, it doesn't really resolve anything. It's just kind of the, the final word that we get. When sorrow, using mine own fire's might, melts down his lead into my boiling breast, through that dark furnace to my heart oppressed there shines a joy from thee my only light but soon as thought of thee breeds my delight and my young soul flutters to thee his nest most rude despair my daily unbidden guest clips straight my wings straight wraps me in his night and makes me then bow down my head and say ah what doth Phoebus gold that wretch avail whom iron doors do keep from use of day so strangely alas thy works in me prevail that in my woes for thee thou art my joy and in my joys for thee my only annoy all right now, look at the, the two major images that start off the, the poem. Uh, we have the image of the furnace, and sorrow is the furnace. It melts down his, uh, you know, in his breast, uh, his, his heart oppressed, uh, and yet even in the midst of his sorrow, there's a joy for thee. So the furnace image, both of heat, melting something down, and also the light that, uh, that shines, that reminds him of her. Um, but even when he has that, that turn from sorrow to delight, and then we get the next image, the image of the bird. My young soul flutters to thee, 
His nest, most rude despair, my daily, my daily unbidden guest, clips straight my wings, straight wraps me in his night. So now we have despair. And uh, despair is, is more powerful than sorrow. There's a, a, a escalation going on here. Uh, despair is a theological idea originally uh, of the idea that you are, it is hopeless. You, you cannot be redeemed. And so his despair is, is more than just being sorry, being sad. It's feeling hopeless. And so his, his soul, like a, a bird, it has its wings clipped. Right? It can't, uh, and, and it wraps me in his night. The way they would put a little blinder on, on uh, hawking hawks that they would hunt with so that they couldn't see, and makes me bow down my head and say, Ah, uh, what doth Phoebus gold, that wretch avail? Phoebus is the god of the sun, the golden sun, whom iron doors do keep from use of day. So it doesn't matter that you have all the gold, you're, you're locked out, you can, you can't get to it. And the very end, so strangely, alas, thy works in me prevail, that in my woes for thee, thou art my joy, and in my joys for thee, my only annoy. So here we get that very, you know, classically Petrarchan idea of the the uh, fused paradoxical opposites. His woes for her are the only thing that brings him joy, and her jo- her joys for her are the only thing that upset him. Uh, so every every emotion carries its its opposite in the in Sydney's sonnet sequence. Um, so though it doesn't. You know, resolve the relationship in any way. It doesn't say they got together or that they that they definitely broke off or he got over his love sickness or she finally yielded to him completely. It does kind of sum up the the paradoxical emotional feelings that he has for her. That every joy is woe, every woe is joy. Um, and it, it is, I think, very fitting that uh, a sonnet sequence to end on that kind of a paradoxical note. All right, well, we'll leave Sydney's sonnet sequence there. And next time, we're going to be talking about the uh, a section from Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. So we'll be looking at uh, book one, Canto one of The Fairy Queen. Uh, now the Fairy Queen was an elaborate uh, allegory that Spencer was writing. And in each of the each book of The Fairy Queen, there's a central knight who allegorically represents uh, one of the virtues. And the first book is about the Red Cross Knight. And he's the knight who represents holiness. And he is accompanied by Una, who is a kind of an allegorical, symbolic or allegorical for truth. And you'll see in this first uh, canto, this first section of the, kind of like a chapter of, of the Fairy Queen, that he has two challenges that he has to meet. The first is the uh, representation of error. And think about how it's represented. What are the? How is it physically described in a way that tells us about its its symbolic or allegorical significance? And then the second 
uh, challenge that he has is the enchanter Archimago. And you'll notice that he does actually very well in defeating the monster of error, but he gets taken in by Archimago. And think about why that is. What is that saying about holiness? Um, why is he so good at one kind of challenge, and why is he not so good at another kind of challenge? Now, as you're reading The Fairy Queen, uh, you'll see that unlike all of the other uh, texts from the Renaissance, this one has not had its spelling modernized. It's in the original uh, Renaissance spelling, and that may throw you a little, but honestly, if you've been able to read through Chaucer, it's not going to be a big deal. But as with Chaucer, I would advise you to read it out loud, um, use the, the footnotes and the glosses to help you understand it, and um, you know, just use the strategies you use for reading Chaucer to help you understand the Fairy Queen. It's not nearly as difficult, but it, it can be a little bit challenging. Um, all right, so we will begin our discussion of Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen next time. Uh, if you have questions about that, please let me know at my email, drmarkwamek at gmail.com. Thank you for your attention. I'll talk to you next time.